copy of God's Word to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. A Psalm of David, a maskil. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the sacredness of your text. Father, thank you for the gracious gift that it is that you have given to us, that we might know you and make you known, that we might understand you, that through it we might know your will and how to approach you, that through it we have the testimony of the glorious sacrifice of your son Jesus and the redemption that comes through the forgiveness of sin. Father, may this reading of your word today be honored. And Father, as we explore the truth of your word together, may our minds and our hearts and our lives be transformed. May we be conformed to the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, Psalm 32 is a classic psalm of Confession. Um, And a lot of scholars think that though it's in book one of the Psalms instead of in book two, that in its use in Judaism, it's probably later on after historical events and everything was put together for our Old Testament, that probably in a lot of services, it was coupled with David's confession psalm in Psalm 51 that this is a look at kind of the two parts of repentance, if you will. If you kind of look at Psalm 51, there's this declaration that David's sin is against God and against God only. And, and he kind of unfolds what that looks like and the offense that his sin has been against the holy God. And then in Psalm 32, you have David's perspective of how God is responding to him. Your hand is heavy on me. When I when I'm silent, this is how you treat me. But I have asked for forgiveness and this is how you responded when you forgave me. And there seems to be the idea of possibly a coupling of these two psalms together, whether that's the case or not. 
This is a fantastic psalm of confession and repentance. Now, we need to start with a little front matter in the superscript of the text. It says that this is a masculine. And uh, she doesn't mind. Right before the service started, my wife leaned over and she said, Philip, I don't know what that means. And I whispered back and I said, no, nor does anybody else. Um, so uh, so you're in good company, Amanda. Um, so masculine is a really weird Hebrew word. The root form of the word skill, the part on the back end of it, because this is just transliterated from the Hebrew is a root word that means to understand, to comprehend, to to contemplate, to give deep thought to. But the little thing on the front is really weird and it doesn't work anywhere else in Hebrew. The only time that you see a construction like this is in the use of this word, wherever else this word might be found, which is not very many places. Now, some speculate that it's the preposition that means... From or toward, of course, you say a preposition can't mean from and toward. In Hebrew, it can. It's a very confusing language. And so from or toward or trying to arrive at is kind of the rough, 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 long definition of what that preposition could possibly mean. The only issue is, is that preposition is not formed that way anywhere else in the Hebrew language. So people aren't 100% sure if that's what this is supposed to mean. However, speculation and analysis and lots of other things have yielded three main thoughts, but only two that really carry weight. One of them is, is that this was marked out as a memory passage. A passage that a person ought to memorize and commit fully to their mind. And when you think through passages in the scripture that would be good to memorize, this confession of sin and God's response and forgiveness wouldn't be a bad one. I'm not going to say that it's not a bad idea to memorize as much scripture as you can. But if you struggle with memorization and you want to pick one, knowing how to properly repent and understand and acknowledge your sin to God, it's a pretty good one to actually have in your arsenal. So... Not a bad thought there. The other one is that this is a contemplative text. That's what it means. Uh, toward understanding, if you take that word to mean that. In other words, this is something that you shouldn't just read once and move on. But that this is something that you should really try to break down. Think about deeply. Wrestle with and make sure that it gets down into the root of who you are. Which, by the way, is... A great way for that to happen is for you to memorize it. So those two things actually go hand in hand with each other. But this is the sort of thing in the scripture that you should give very deep contemplation to. Either way, we're not sure, but it also denotes music in some fashion. So let's kind of break down this memorized, contemplative, musical psalm. How does he start? He talks about the blessing. How blessed is he? Very similar to the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Talking about the blessings. There's a blessed life to live. Alright, so what does David declare is the blessed life? How blessed is he who what? Whose transgression is forgiven. That's a great way to start out acknowledging that you've been blessed by God. That your transgression is forgiven. Now, that language, if we were to kind of break it down a little bit of our transgression being forgiven, it's our wrongdoing. That's the the kind of technical definition of transgression. Our wrongdoing is taken away. The word for forgiven there means to remove something. So our wrongdoing has been forgiven. 
removed. Now, this is very telling in the Judeo-Christian understanding of what it means to forgive. Because a lot of times we forgive and remember. You heard the old saying we should forgive and forget. That's coming from this. We forgive and remember. Your wrongdoing has been taken away. It's not there anymore. So if it were to get brought back up, I'm looking at empty space. I'm going, what are you talking about? When it talks in other places in the Old Testament text of God views our sins as having been forgiven, having been removed as far as the east is from the west, those two never touch. There's a reason why the text doesn't say north and south. It says east and west. Because if you're going east, even if you end up back in the same spot, you've just gone east the whole time. You actually have to turn around to go west. Your wrongdoing has been removed. When God looks at you, he looks at one who's actually innocent, not just innocent, but one who's innocent as in they never actually did anything wrong in the first place. It's been removed. You weren't just found innocent by a jury of your peers. You have been declared innocent by the God of the universe who could hold you guilty, but instead transforms you into something that looks as if it has no sin on it. It's been removed. And by the way, that's the way that God says that we're supposed to forgive each other. And then he says, how blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This word for sin is that classic Old Testament word, the idea of, of missing the mark, not hitting the object correctly. And the fact that I'm missing it completely, that I'm not hitting where I'm supposed to be, I'm not moving correctly in the moral direction of my life, that gets covered It's a mulligan, if you will. (laughs) It's uh, when you're in the driveway with your kid, you're playing horse, and they shoot an air ball, and they go, hey, can I try again? Sure. Go ahead. Last shot didn't count. It's covered. Like never happened. That's this picture. That's this idea. And how blessed is he also who the Lord does not impute iniquity. This is this is this is kind of a weird deal. That word for impute actually means to hold something in high regard. Or to give something the attention it deserves. And the word for iniquity is kind of another phrase for perversity, the, 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 the perverse things that come out of a person's life. How blessed is the one who the Lord does not give the attention that your perversity deserves. Amen. Because if he did, there'd be nothing but wrath. 
That, that would be God's response to me. Wrath and fury and anger. If he gave my perversity the attention that it deserves, there would be lots of problems. But instead, he does not do that. How blessed is the man that this happens to. And then notice what David says about his own time of unrepentance when he was not living in that blessing. When you get to verse three, when he kept silent, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. When I didn't repent, when I didn't acknowledge my sinful condition before the Lord. It had real physical, emotional and spiritual consequences in my life. Now, I've made it very clear and very plain from this pulpit and in other very public environments. That there are legitimately. And in real time and in real space. Biochemical things that happen to people. Processing things that happen to people where physical sickness and depression and despair come on someone and it's not necessarily sin related. And there are things that people need to learn how to to walk through and they need help of others. And they need good counsel. I'm not going to deny any of that. Never will deny any of that. It's real. Even Spurgeon had what he used to call his dark nights of the soul and just constantly battled with overwhelming anxiety and depression. But I will also say, friend, this morning. That a lot of the things that we sometimes try to medicate ourselves from. Is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because when I live in my sin and I don't repent of it. My body starts to waste away. And I can't eat right. And I can't sleep right. And I can't focus correctly. And I struggle processing information well. And it affects my relationships with other people. When I try to hide my sin. Because of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. It chips away at me from the inside out. And it creates a great deal of stress and anxiety in my life. Guess what? Both of those things can actually happen in our world. You can have real problems that need real help and solutions. And you can also have real sin problems that need real help and real sin problem solutions. And sometimes it could be a little bit of both. But just know that sometimes the negative physical and emotional responses that we have to the circumstances in our life are not stemming so much from our inability to process our circumstances as they are our inability to acknowledge that we have hidden sin that we need to confess. Why is that so? Because God's hand was heavy upon him. Friend, hear hear me. If you never learn anything spiritual from me, learn this. You don't want that. You do not want the heavy hand of God upon you. There's two pictures for the believer of God's hand In relationship to them. For the unbeliever, it's the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God. It's a it's a it's a picture of 
fighting and battle and, and wrath. For the believer, though, there's two pictures of God's hand. There's God's hand under us and enclosed around us. That's the picture Jesus gives us. No one will ever snatch you out of God's hand. And then there's the picture of God's hand over us, pressing down on us, squeezing us, if you will, putting spiritual pressure on our lives because of our unrepentance. Guess what? This will not throw you into hell, but it will sure make you feel like that's where you're going. Day and night, I was groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality. It's such a sanitized translation. Really the better way to translate, and some of your Bibles may even have this as a secondary footnote. My life juices were being squeezed out of me. You ever feel that way? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I felt that way before. Like the fever heat of summer. We in East Texas get that. We don't need a commentator to help us understand what David means here. When we first moved here all those years ago, the first full summer that we had here in East Texas was that record-breaking summer where there were 100 straight days of no rain and most of those days reached close to or above 100 degrees. And Amanda decided to go home and visit family in Memphis for about a week or so. And people asked me, they said, hey, did, is Amanda having a good time back, back in Memphis? I said, she's having a great time, yeah. Um, they said, well, is she glad to get away from all this heat? Ha, ha, ha. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I talked to her on the phone the other day, and she said she can't wait to get back to Tyler where it's cooler. And he said, wait, what do you mean? I said, well, she happened to catch the Memphis heat wave, where the lowest high all week was 109 And the heat index every day was over 120 and the overnight lows never got under 94 with a relative humidity of 99%. She'd love to get back here where we are, where it's nice and pleasant outside. Those of us who live in this region of the country, East Texas over, down below Kentucky on the other side of the Mississippi River, we get the drought of the severe summer heat. We get it. We know it. We know what David's talking about. I, I got a friend who lives in Iowa. He didn't get it. Now, he didn't have any idea what we're talking about. Oh, we had a heat wave. It was 79 degrees outside. I'm like, yeah, be quiet. So you don't have any idea what you're talking about. But you know what that feels like? You know, when late July, early August gets here and it hasn't rained for three weeks and the overnight load never gets below 90 and you take a shower and you step outside and you get ready to go do whatever you're going to do for the day and you're like, why did I take a shower? I'm in another one now outside. And as soon as you get out there, you have to open up your car door, let it kind of cool out because you know if you get in it, you're going to cook. Like you're literally going to be like, hey, bing, he's done. It's like 350 degree internal temperature. This is what's happening to David, spiritually speaking, because God's hand is heavy on him. My life. Life, my energy drained away from me because I kept my sin hidden. And friends, that happens to the believer every time. I'll tell you what a professor told me many years ago. He said, if this sort of thing does not happen to you, if when you know you're hiding sin, but this is not the effect that it has on you, then you need to ask the question, am I really in the Lord at all? Because the Lord will not allow me to hide my sin and not feel this way. He just won't. 
And so what did David do? He shows us a magnificent picture of the process of repentance in verse 5. Look at this process. Look at how this looks. Look at how this goes. This is great. Like, if you're ever like, I just, I, I, I want to know how to repent. Here it is. I acknowledge my sin to you. There's an admission of sin. There's an admission of sin without excuse. This is kind of an aside, but related, and it's for free, and it might help a whole bunch of people not have to go to the counselor's office. Here it is. If you're at odds with somebody else, and there's even the slightest that you wronged that person in any way, regardless of the reasons why, If your apology to them, if you're seeking of repentance from them, if your desire to be reconciled to them starts like this. Yeah, I know what I did was wrong, but you need to stop and go home and try again. Notice David doesn't say, I acknowledged my sin while I explained to the Lord why I did what. No, there's no, there's no excuses. There's no self-justification. I acknowledged my sin. That's step one of a great process of repentance. I own the fact that what I did was wrong, regardless of the reasons as to why I think I did it. What I did was wrong. It was sinful. It was rebellious. It was against the will of God. I have acknowledged this. That's step one. Step two. I did not hide my iniquity. All right. So I've been hiding it. I acknowledged it. I exposed it before the Lord. I said, God, this is what's going on. Step three. I confessed my transgressions to the Lord. And you say, Philip, actually steps one, two and three are all the same thing. Yes, because God loves us and he knows we're stupid and he's trying to make it easy on us. All I have to do is look at God and say, this is what I did and I messed up. It's not a really crazy lengthy process that God wants us to go through here. Humble acknowledgement of our wrongdoing. Without excuse. That's it. Say, well, why did he say it three different ways, three different times? So we get it. And if we want to be really technical so that in the Hebrew poetic form, it would be a parallelism to verse two. I just you can go back and look at that later over lunch. And then what happens when we acknowledge our sin, when we don't hide our iniquity, when we confess our transgressions, what happens? Notice what David says. I did those things. And you, God, forgave the guilt of my sin. And that's beautiful. Now, I don't do this a lot, but and I'm not going to break into the Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I want you to see something really cool in this verse that totally gets lost in the English that makes it even more potent. This you forgave the guilt of my sin. That word for guilt is the same word that's been used in verse two and in verse five for the word iniquity that could be translated perversion. Perversion. 
What he's actually saying is, is you forgave, if we were to translate it very literally, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the perversion of my sin. You forgave the sin of my sin. Not just the guilt, but the actual thing itself. It's one thing to forgive a person their guilt. You did something wrong and now I'm excusing you of your guiltiness, even though in truth, you're still the one who did the wrong thing. No, God is able to do something that our legal system cannot do. We are not just declared not guilty. We are now declared innocent and righteous. I forgave the sin of your sin. Not just the guilt of your sin. Not just the fact that you actually did sin. I'm actually cleansing you from the inside out. I'm not just declaring you innocent. I'm making you innocent. And if you want to know how he accomplished this, it's because he took the sins of his people and he placed them on his innocent son and he exchanged the innocent one for the guilty. And all of our sin and those things deserving of wrath became the embodiment in Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. We're about to celebrate that here in just a moment. And all of his righteousness and his innocence became ours as a great exchange of substitute because of the atonement work of Jesus Christ. When God sees me now, he does not see a declared not guilty Philip. When God sees me now, he sees someone clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And friends, one is way more powerful than the other. And so what does the psalmist then do here? He calls people to understand that now is the time of repentance. Friends, listen, if you know that you're hiding secret sin, if you know, like Jesus talked about, you know that that a brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar, go be reconciled to your brother. Now, now is the time of repentance. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, let everyone who's godly pray to you, pray to God in a time when you may be found. Pray when God Can be found. The kindness of God. It says in Romans. Should lead us. To repentance. Today is the day of salvation. It's now. We do not delay. And put off. A continual spirit of rebellion. Against God. We don't do this. Now, if this is to be coupled with Psalm 51, and I tend to think that those scholars are probably right that it should be. And this is in reference to David's sin with Bathsheba. This thing went on for months. Can you imagine hiding the guilt and shame of that relationship that then led to a murder for months and months and months? As someone who truly loves the Lord. Can you imagine? I can. Because I know that I've hidden sin for long stretches of time in my life. I know I have. Pray when God can be found. In other words, what David is saying here is don't presume upon God's grace and don't mock the Lord's mercy. 
The reform perspective of sovereignty is a great perspective. I wholeheartedly agree with it. It should be more robustly preached and taught through congregations all out throughout the world much better than it is now. However, it can be dangerously twisted into an excuse to hide our sins and presume upon the grace of God. We begin to sound less like the early Christians of the New Testament who were marked by humility and repentance and a call for forgiveness from God like we see in First John. And we start sounding more like the Pharisees that Jesus engaged with who said, who are you to tell us how to be? We have Abraham as our father. They were presuming on the grace of God. They assumed that because of their standing with God, they could live how they wanted to live and act how they wanted to act. And no one could tell them when they needed to repent or not repent. And when Jesus was preaching this kingdom and preaching repentance, it was offensive to them. And friend, if a call to repentance when you ought to repent is offensive to you rather than transformative for you, you are not behaving as one who follows Christ. You're behaving as one who's presuming on the grace of God. And this is what David says. Call out to God while he can be found. Don't presume upon God's grace. Don't mock the Lord's mercy. Notice. What else he says? In keeping repentance ever before us, what are we delivered from? When we keep repentance ever before us, what is it that we are delivered from? We are delivered from the wrath of God. Notice the second half of this verse. Pray to God when he may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. We we don't have to work really hard to understand what David is alluding to here. In the Old Testament, there is one great story of a great flood of waters. And what does the New Testament say that Noah was preaching in the days that he was building that ark? What was he preaching? Repentance. Yes, some people have been paying attention to the connections of the Old and New Testament. Noah was preaching repentance. And you know what? People didn't repent. They presumed upon God's grace. And then the floods came. And do you know who was delivered? Those inside the ark. Those inside of God's grace. Because friends, hear me. Noah's family wasn't perfect. They weren't flawless and they were not without their sin. You don't know that? Just read what happens when they get off the boat. He delivers us from the wrath of God. How? By hiding us in himself. You, God, are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Friends, there's two beautiful things that happen when we live a life of repentance. We are delivered from the wrath of God and we get to experience the songs of God being sung over us as songs of deliverance. I'm in the Lord. This is the metaphorical language used in the prophets later. You sing over me. What is God singing over us? He's singing a song of deliverance. The greatness and the glory of his son, Jesus. It's being sung into our lives and it's fantastic. And what happens when all this is true? What happens? We have a renewed relationship. We have a renewed relationship. Look at verse eight. 
The Lord himself instructs us. There's a change here in verses 8 and 9. Where the, the, the main announcer, the main proclaimer is no longer the psalmist. It's no longer David. But now it's the Lord. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The Lord instructs us. The Lord teaches us. He gives us counsel with attentive care. That's what it means to have your eye on someone. We use it in a negative, more derogatory sense. I got my eye on you. That's not really the way that it historically would have been used. It would have been more of someone who's training someone else, someone who is a master and has a people, and they're instructing that people in how they should go, and they've given them the freedom to try to walk in the pathway of how they should be, and yet I'm going to watch, I'm going to be there, I'm going to make sure it's going the way it should go, I'm going to help you when you need help, I'm going to give you correction when you need it, I'm going to attentively engage in what's happening in your your life. That is a friends. The hands not like this anymore. The hands like this again now. That's what happens in repentance. And so what does God call to us? God himself in salt in this psalm in verse nine calls to us to have understanding. Look at verse nine. Do not be as the horse. Or as the mule. Which have no understanding. Whose trapping include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they would not come near to you. In other words, God is saying to his people. Be so marked. By the humility of repentance. That I don't have to drag you by your mouth. To get you where I want you to go. God does not. Desire. To lead his people in that way. It's not saying he won't. And trust me. I I have enough spiritually out of place teeth. To know that God will. On occasion do that. But he's calling to us as those filled with the spirit. Marked by Christ to not respond to him in that way. It's kind of the classic father to his son. Don't make me have to come over there. Unfortunately, in all of our lives, there comes a breaking point where we really become curious and want to find out what will happen if he does, in fact, come over here. I did it when I was a kid. My kids have done it. Mother and I, some precatory prayers against them is that their children will do it to them one day. Don't look at me like that. You've all prayed that against your kids. I hope you have a kid. Yeah, you know, quite honestly, you know, I, I remember what I was like as a kid. I, I, my prayers, I prayed no children ever act this way ever again. You know, like the world would be a better place. But I don't want that. I, I don't want God to come over and stick the bridle in my mouth. Because I'm being a dumb animal. Friends, those made in the image of God aren't dumb animals. We're image bearers. We've been marked with reason and wisdom. We've been touched by grace. And God's calling out to us. Hey, turn away from your hidden sins. Humble yourself before the Lord and be reconciled. This is wisdom and understanding. And then notice how it closes. He declares that many are the sorrows of the wicked. 
be incomplete if we didn't mark that out. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Well, what is it about the redeemed's life that's not sorrowful? Notice he says, but he who trusts in the Lord, what happens? Loving kindness shall surround them. Friends, I'm not saying your life won't be marked by what we commonly call sorrow. We live in sinful, broken world with sinful, broken people. We're going to experience sorrow. We're going to experience loss. We're going to experience pain. We're going to experience all manner of things. But friends, that is not what marks our lives out as joyful. It's not the difficulty of our circumstances that informs the emotional well-being of the believer. What informs the emotional well-being of the believer is the fact that I am surrounded by the loving kindness of God. My circumstances no longer matter in the same way that they did before. Because no matter what I'm going through, God is there. Remember, not this, this. And no one, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what should our response be to that? What should our response be to that? I love it. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord. And not just that. Rejoice. All you righteous ones shout for joy. All you who are upright in heart, our response, worship. I hid my sin. My sin weighed heavily upon me. God's hand was heavy on me. It was crushing me. It was destroying me from the inside out. And I, in humility, responded rightly to God's grace. And I confessed my sin. I turned away from my sin. And he forgave me the sin of my sin. And didn't just declare me not guilty. He made me innocent. And he's wrapped me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he has seated me on a throne in heavenly places. And he has crowned me with life and glory. And he has given me a seat at his banquet table to feast with him. Not as a visitor and not as a guest. But as an adopted son in his kingdom. Co-heir with Christ. Joint ruler of the universe. Philip, that's blasphemy. No, that's the New Testament. Why? For what reason? Because of his grace. Because of his grace. And he alone is worthy of my worship and adoration. And no matter how hard things are for me, I am in the loving kindness of God Almighty. And no matter how sorrowful and broken and difficult my situation may appear. He is worthy enough that I raise my voice in song of praise to him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the covering of sin that has come upon us. The removal of our sin from us, not just the declaration of not guilty, but an actual being actually being remade into righteousness and innocence. A great transformation that we could truly have nothing to do with. But by your grace and for your glory, through the work of your son, 
You have redeemed us to yourself. Father, do not let us presume on your grace. Do not let us hide sin in our hearts. Do not let us cover over our rebellion against you. But God, let us come to you broken and wounded, hands dirty out before you saying, Father, forgive me. And Father, let us remember that just like the prodigal son, No matter what speech we work on on the road to the house, you will run to us. You will declare that your child who is dead is now alive. Your child that was lost is now found. And you will sing songs of deliverance over us. Father, we can't fathom the beauty of grace like this. And our only response is to worship, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to prepare to share in the Lord's table together this morning. There are some elements at the front and the back if you were not able to get access to those on your way in. We'll give everybody a moment to get what they need, and then we'll begin. This morning we have the opportunity to share together in the Lord's table the pictures of the elements symbolizing this great work that Christ has done for us. The baking together of the elements of bread. Those things being transformed through heat and through pressure into something that can give life and sustain and fulfill. Those grapes being crushed underfoot to create juice that then in turn can give life and substance. And this crushing of both can never be separated out, but it can be participated in in the final form of what it's become. This is the work of Christ. Christ has borne for us the wrath of God. He has drunk that cup. He has taken our place. He who knew no sin became sin. He made a great exchange. He bore what we should have borne and he gave as a free gift to us that which we could never achieve on our own. And friends, it's called communion because it is our common unity, regardless of our educational backgrounds, our ethnic backgrounds, our racial backgrounds, our 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 differences that exist in society and in biology and in all kinds of other ways. That which binds us together is the fact that we all have acknowledged at some point that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but have been made alive together by God in Christ Jesus. And this binds us together greater than any other thing this world ever would have to offer. So that's what we participate in together this morning is that common unity that we have together. So I invite you to take the bread. So this is my body, which has been given for you. Take and eat all of it.
Father God, we thank you for the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died upon that tree as a curse for us. That he, who would never leave us or forsake us, cried out to you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, deep, rich mystery that it is, we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. I also invite you to take the cup. Jesus said, this is the blood, my new covenant, which has been given as a ransom for many. Take and drink all of it. Father God, we thank you that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. We thank you that Christ Jesus has shed his own blood for us. We thank you that by his blood, he has redeemed us and forgiven us and he has made us new. That it is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that binds us together one with another. We thank you for that in Jesus name. Amen.